Let us pray together. Ye hu lorazon. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Before I start, I just want to say it's a pleasure to be leading worship again with the chancel choir. Thank you all for being with us here again today. It is sweet to have this music pouring around us and leading us and often sending us out singing together. I'm also going to say that I can't stop sweating in this humidity, so I'm going to take my jacket off and be a little bit more casual. So any of you who are in education, if you weren't yet a little scared of your profession and warned before, you should be by now. <laughs> the letter of James is very clear that not many of us should go into teaching because we will be judged with greater strictness. Anyone who's ever gotten up in front and tried to teach a class of people knows what James is talking about. The same is true, of course, of preachers. We come up here with great fear knowing that people listen to a sermon differently than they listen to about any other kind of oration. People tend to open up their hearts and souls in a way to a sermon that they don't to other speeches, and it is always something that we need to be careful about. As one of my favorite preachers used to say, his prayer before getting up to preach was the same as the doctor's prayer, Lord, let me do no harm. But the same is true, of course, in this culture of television commentators and politicians, of which I will say a little bit more in a moment. James is, as Betty mentioned to us, a strong-worded letter, a provocative letter. It starts out with these words, Whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will make you mature and complete. James knows that life is hard and that it helps us become stronger, and faith is the road to help us do that. He's very concerned about the people he's writing to, wanting them to do away with any class distinctions and special status. He also is very clear that he thinks that faith has to have works to go along with it. He says, can faith save you if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and you tell them, go, be in peace, have your fill, but do nothing for them, what does that say about your faith? As he says, faith by itself has no, without works, is dead. And for this reason, Martin Luther hated this letter, and he thought that we shouldn't pay much attention to it, and for many years in Christianity, we didn't pay much attention to James. But I'll say, among the people I know and the congregations I know, people tend to appreciate James because he goads us a little bit into action. He gives us some practical ideas of how we should live our faith. He believes it needs to be seen and believed. He also says pure religion is to care for orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. And he goes on several times about the power of speech. If you think you are religious but do not bridle your tongue, and you deceive your hearts, your religion is worthless. And finally, these words, which all of us could stand probably to put up somewhere where we see them all the time, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. 
The thing about James is he thinks that our faith, even the existence of God, is present among us and in our relationships. And whenever we offend one another or go against our community or the people we're in relationship with, we are also offending God. We are not unfazed atoms floating freeform out in the universe, but we are knit together in this unbreakable chain. And James wants us to see that our actions are actually demonstrations of our faith. Christian practice is the heart of Christian faith. You can't separate them. And so, as you'll see from the graphic we put on the order of worship, this is a way in which our brains, but I would also say our hearts, if I were to redraw that graphic, demonstrate who we are and go out into the world. The tongue, the power of speech, it's like a bit in the mouth of a horse directing this powerful beast wherever it will go. It's like a rudder on a ship steering the great craft across the mighty oceans. It's a seemingly small, containable campfire that gets out of control and burns down thousands of acres. It's a spring, this power of speech we have, and we have the responsibility of whether it pours forth sweet, potable water or brackish bilge water. And you can hear, as he says, he takes a rather dim view that we can actually open up hell with our tongues, that there's a lot of evil that goes on. Strong words are part of James' rhetoric. But I think he also sees something that you and I also know, which is the power of speech is this great physiological and sociological gift. The number of muscle fibers and neuron synapses that go on in the process of hearing and then putting out words are in the tens of thousands. And also the fact that we can communicate with one another in ways that most other species don't with little letters that we put together in all sorts of formations to create these words which contain meaning and shape are powerful and are great gifts. I heard that talking, the act of speech, takes up about one-fifth of our lives. That we spend one-fifth of our day talking. If you were to write down in a transcript everything we say every day, the average person would fill 50 pages. Some of us would have larger font and smaller font and different margins, but that's the average. And in one year, we might produce with all our spoken word 132 books of 200 pages each. And this might also include, in this day and age, our texts, our tweets, and our emails. We are factories of words flowing through us all the time. Now, some of us are external processors, and we think out loud, and speech is a little bit harder for us to be careful with. Some of us are quick-witted, and it comes out before we even think it, hardly. And some of us are internal processors where we stew and go over the words. But on average, a fifth of our lives are spent in speech. And this is something James realized. It's helpful for him to point out teachers, because as most teachers know, as you're teaching a subject, sometimes you never know how the words land. You never know how the students take them in. I'm sure there are teachers here among us who have had students come up to them years after being in the profession and say, do you remember me? And the teacher goes to the Rolodex of all the dozens of students they've taught, and they may have a vague recollection, but they fake it or they know for sure. And then that person says, you said a word that touched me deeply that changed my life, something about service, or integrity, or allegiance and loyalty, 
something about how we work together as human beings, and it made me join the Peace Corps, or it made me realize that I should be an engineer, or it made me want to be a teacher myself. And often, when a teacher is confronted with that person, you can barely remember sometimes what you said, because it has gone on in the pages of words that have gone forth. We know this as parents and as children. Many of us can think of words of encouragement that we got that helped us define who we are, and some of us can remember all too painfully and distinctly words that were darts in the heart. One theologian I know says that his daughter remembered a time when she said that he, that he had said to her, I wish you would just go away. He never remembered saying that, but it was a dart in the heart that put a wedge between their relationship through adolescence and college for years and years. It's an awesome task to be in any sort of position in which our words have this power over other people. It's not just those of us who are teachers and parents, but leaders of any kind. Those of us who are spouses and partners those of us who are in community, those of us who are friends, who have any relationship with one another. And what James wants us to understand is that these words have to come from God because they will go back to God. The way we affect one another is the way we affect God among us. Now, in our contemporary culture, with social media and the Internet and Facebook, we see lots of ways that this happens. Just this past week, we saw two poignant examples. Some of you may have heard about Miss Colorado, Kelly Johnson, getting up and giving a monologue about her being a nurse. She was dressed in scrubs, she had a stethoscope. And then later, the women on The View, the television talk show, were commenting on it. Basically, I don't, I'm not a regular watcher of The View, but as I understand it, it's sort of a coffee clatch. It's a way to discuss what's going on in culture in a sort of informal, casual way. But as the co-host, Michelle Collins, said, she came out in a nurse's uniform and basically read her emails out loud and shockingly did not win. I swear to God, it was hilarious. And Joy Behar also wondered, why was she wearing a doctor's stethoscope? One of you who watched this saw social media light up about this, and it became a cause for celebrating our nurses and the hard work they do. Doctors who stood with all their nurses around them wearing stethoscopes and say, I can't stand it, they took the stethoscopes away from me. <laughs> or one doctor who took all of his nurses' stethoscopes and put all 20 of them around his neck and said, I had to go confiscate them after what you said. <laughs> now, I'm pretty sure that Michelle and Joy and the others on The View had no idea it was going to set off this firestorm, but it did. And they came back and apologized, although some considered their apology Week. They tried to make amends, but it was only after several advertisers had pulled their support for the show. Idle speech, careless talk, going out to millions of people. You may have also thought about this as you were watching or did not watch or just read about the Republican debates this week. Now, here's where I have to be really careful as a preacher in speaking. <laughs> but I wondered as I looked at the reports of that debate, how many of them had read James 3 recently? <laughs> how many of them had thought about the power of speech? I'm pretty sure that most of them know that one little trip up of words can sink a candidacy, that people can misconstrue in all sorts of ways, 
They also realize how one word can be a rudder that steers things in a different direction. Now, there is one candidate there who I think is all on our minds who we feel kind of comfortable saying doesn't read James 3 very often <laughs> and has created a phenomenon, a phenomenon that is difficult not only for Republicans but also for Democrats, for conservatives and liberals. Someone who is saying lots of words and seemingly carelessly. Someone who is playing to lots of fears and prejudices. You may know after his comments about Mexican immigrants and building the wall that there was a violent act in South Boston against a homeless Latino man. And the, the guys who were caught doing it said, Donald Trump is right. All these illegals need to be deported. Somehow they felt legitimizing their need to abuse, to hurt, and def defile this man. You may have heard this week that someone confronted him about what are we going to do with all these Muslims who are in America, and you know our president is a Muslim. Unlike John McCain several years ago, when confronted by a similar comment, who corrected the person he was listening to, Mr. Trump did not do that. Now, I have come to watch this phenomenon, as I am sure of you, and wonder what's going on as his poll numbers swell in popularity. And I've come to the conclusion that if he were a stand-up comedian, it would not bother us nearly as much. Because we count on our comedians to prod us and poke us, to use exaggeration and sarcasm. And sometimes going completely against what James 3 is saying, using group stereotypes and just plain silliness. But the thing is, is he's not a stand-up comedian. He's running for an important office that will indeed steer the ship of state that will set off fires and also be able to put them out. And as one colleague said to me this week, I don't find him funny at all because he's legitimating that kind of talk in our culture. Now again, as I said, I have to be very careful where I go with this, and I'm not sure how we respond except that we need to respond honestly and clearly. We need to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. This is all going on in the national sphere, and as I said, social media and Facebook and the internet make it light up in greater proportions so the fires go even further and the ships go even farther. But I wonder what it means for you and me as we walk out of here today. I believe, as you've heard me say before, that church can be the testing ground for how we should be out in the world. I believe the same about schools, too. Here we get to practice the faith. We get to practice what it means to put our beliefs and our right speech into action. And I've actually turned to our Buddhist friends and neighbors because they talk quite a bit about right speech. In the negative form, they say right speech is abstaining from lying, it's abstaining from divisive speech, that which separates and divides us. Abstaining from abusive speech, that which hurts and harms others. And refraining from idle chatter, speech that really has no purpose at all. In the positive form, it is this, speech that is spoken at the right time, knowing when to stay silent and knowing when to speak up. Speech that is true, not passing on rumors or half-truths, but really knowing 
if what you are saying is the truth. If not out in the culture, then being clear that it is true for you. Right speech, according to Buddhist practice, is speech that is sweet, that is pleasing, that makes life more bearable for others. It is speech that is useful and helpful, that encourages, that lifts people up, that gives them a hand forward. And it is finally speech that is kind and compassionate, that tries to look at things from the other person's point of view, that tries to sit with it a while and to imagine what it's like to be in real relationship with that person, in real dialogue, in real compassion, in the struggle with them. I think that James gives us an easy way to judge our speech as we're trying to think whether we should respond or not as to what the right word is. And I think that's to decide if our words are a blessing or a curse. Is what I'm about to say going to bless this person and lift them up and be compassionate, or is it going to bring them down and curse them? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. But I would also say, because James realizes, as he says in this passage, that we are all mistaken, we're all going to mess it up, that none of us are perfect, that when we hear speech that offends us, we take a breath and we think about where it's coming from and we think carefully before we respond, that we all take just a little bit more time before writing those 50 pages for the day. I believe in community we try this together regularly, daily, hourly, to get the right speech. And as we suggested in the call to worship, Sometimes just listening for God in the world around us, how God is whispering in the trees or gently roaring in the surf or in the cry of a child, is telling us how we may be in this world, that our speech may be always connected to God, and through us, God may speak as well. Amen. Amen.